This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, we welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are new to 88.7. We live stream through the internet around the world at wagp.net. So if you ever leave the area or you have friends in another section of the world that are looking for solid Christian radio, send them to wagp.net. Now, with that said, we get questions that come in from across the country, even foreign countries at time. And uh, that's what we attempt to do in the next hour in what we call the Bible line. It's a time for you to call in or to text us, uh, email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, at WAGP.net. Or you can call us toll-free at 877. The call letter is WAGP980. WAGP 980 is the 877, or locally you can use the number uh, 843-525-1859. If you email us, it will pop up here on the screen, or you can call and dictate your question, or if you prefer, you can go on the air live, and we do give preference to live callers. So let's go ahead, Rick, and we'll get started today. All right, Pastor, uh, Marilyn emailed us with this uh, comment and question. She writes, I've had a number of people who believe if one believes in John 3.16, they have salvation. I don't see it that way. I believe you have to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and you are saved by grace alone, by faith alone. John 3.16 is a wonderful verse, no argument. Just wondering what your educated opinion believes. Is it even a debatable issue? Well, it's not really debatable, but I think maybe the assumption that you've made um is uh, somewhat of a half-truth. So let me see if I can respond. I think you're right in the sense that there's a lot of people who can recite John 3.16 who are not born again. So in that sense, you're 10,000% right, and my guess is that's where you're coming from. Uh, In that, you know, look, I've had drunks quote John 3.16 to me before. So just because someone knows that verse doesn't mean they are truly believing in Christ. But the promise of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him and God's son should not perish but have right now, this moment, eternal life. That's the promise. And so the promise, though, has a context. And so your assumption is correct in the sense that one must believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. But the context brings that out. If you remember, the occasion was Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a leader. He's not just a teacher. He's the teacher of teachers. It's articular. Uh, Are you the teacher of Israel? Not a teacher. Some translations are a little looser there. But the article is present in all the Greek manuscripts. Are you the teacher of Israel? Meaning the leader of leaders, the teacher of teachers. You don't understand your need to be born again. You should. Uh, because he says in verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and testify what we have seen, yet you do not accept our testimony. Who's the we? 
Well, the Lord is really reminding Nicodemus of the scriptures, what God had affirmed for centuries. You could study Jeremiah uh, 31 or Ezekiel 36, and in those passages, there's a promise of the new covenant, of the need to be regenerated, or to use Jesus's words, the need to be born again. And so Ezekiel, for instance, says that we have hearts that are like stone, but God will make them soft and pliable like hearts of flesh. How? Because both Jeremiah and Ezekiel says God will put his spirit within you, uh, that indeed they might all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And that, by the way, is the nature of eternal life. John seventeen three that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Not just know of his existence, but know God in a personal way, in a life-changing way. A lot of people know Christ the way I know the president. I know who our president is. I, I know a lot of things about our president. But if he came into the studio this morning, uh, on this Tuesday in March, he, he wouldn't know me from Adam. Why? Because I don't know him personally. Well, a lot of people know a lot of facts about Christ. They can even recite John 3.16 because they memorize it as a child. But while they believe about the Lord, they've never met the Lord. They don't believe in Christ. The promise is whoever believes in me. So Jesus continues, and Nicodemus asks the, well, Jesus first says in verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Christ is speaking with absolute authority because he's coming from heaven. He was sent into the world, not just simply born into the world, but sent into the world because the Bible affirms the eternality of Christ. And then, of course, in dealing with Nicodemus, um, a teacher of the Jews, uh, who has great respect for this teacher from Galilee, and that's all he sees him at this point, Uh, But one who understands the Old Testament, he relates to him through the Old Testament. When when Christ, excuse me, when Christ deals with the uh, Samaritan woman in John 4, he deals with her on a much different level for the simple fact that she has a very limited knowledge of Scripture. But this man is a teacher of the Scriptures. And so he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. And so he is referencing Numbers chapter 21 when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they began to bellyache and they said, ah, oh, there's no bread, there's no water. You know, we loathe this miserable food, this manna. And uh, so the Lord sent these fiery serpents amongst the people. There are 600,000 men that leave Egypt, excluding women and children. So there's approximately 2 million people. And as the poisonous, venomous snakes go through the multitudes, people are getting sick, they're dropping dead. And so they go to Moses, if you remember, and they said, Moses, intercede for us. Why? Because not everyone had access directly to God. Only a select number of people under the old covenant could approach God. Uh, You had to go through a priest or an intercessory of a type, and Moses was that for the nation of Israel. And so Moses prayed or interceded for the people, and God's solution was make a snake out of bronze. Make a snake out of the likeness of the one that, like those that are biting the people, and set it up on a pole. Why on a pole? Because God wanted people to see it. God's heart is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so if he put it on a pole, you could be anywhere in the camp, and you would see it. And the promise was, if you would 
look and live. If you would look, you would instantly live. And so uh, then he makes the analogy. Um, So as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. So he's really speaking of what you say, the death, burial, and the resurrection. Jesus would not only be lifted up on a cross, but then he would be raised from the dead, such that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. And then the most quoted verse, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. So your assumption that the death, burial, and resurrection is not in John three sixteen. well, it may not be in most people's minds, because while they can quote the verse, they don't understand the context of the verse. And so the context is the work of the Messiah and what he had been prophesied to do to bring about this new covenant. So you're right and you're wrong, but it's a great question because it tells me you're searching the scriptures and you are thinking about really critical, important issues. Let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Bogue. This is Anthony. How are you doing this morning? Hey, doing well, Anthony. Thanks for calling. You doing all right out there today? Can, Can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Go ahead. Okay. Um, the, uh, Saul, when Saul was the king, and Saul wasn't behaving right, and when God chose David to be the new king, and David ran from Saul for a good while because Saul wanted to kill him. Now, when when David was not, I guess he hadn't had his inaugural ball yet as king, or being ordained as king, and David did not want to kill Saul, but he had a chance to kill him and remove him. Should that, I'm not saying, not talking about kill now when it comes to pastors and leaders of the church, should someone not want to maybe get a pastor of the church if he's not fulfilling or living the right life according to the scriptures? Should they say we shouldn't touch God's anointed? Should they treat that the same way? If you can understand my question, uh, I'll listen to you. I can't hear you. Something wrong with my phone. All right. Not everyone realizes it, but Anthony is a police officer who uh, serves our county so well. And I'm thankful to him and for all the officers who serve, who protect us. You don't want to live in a town where there's no police officers. Um, The situation with uh, Saul is very different from, say, a current-day pastor. Uh, Saul is considered God's anointed. And so, indeed, um, David, there in En Gedi, he has an opportunity uh, Saul goes into a cave, the Bible says, to, to relieve himself, and he removes his outer garment and probably lays it aside on a rock, and little does he know that David and his men are in the back of this huge cave. Uh, some of you have been with me to En Gedi, and there's caves everywhere, and there are some very, very large caves as well that would hold hundreds and hundreds of people. So David's in there, and his men are resting and, of course, uh, Saul comes in, and uh, there's utter quiet in the cave, and people want David to take Saul's life, but he doesn't. But he does cut off a portion of David's robe, of Saul's robe, and, of course, later will wave it. Uh, 
and say, hey, look, you know, I could have taken your life, but I didn't. Why? Because you're God's one who is anointed. The word anointed is messiach, and it's used in a formal and in an informal way, just like the word apostle and deacon and other words in the New Testament. Um, He was God's messiach. He was not the anointed one, the Messiah, but he was one who was set apart for God's purposes. Now, you reference an interesting verse that sometimes, you know, pastors, usually false prophets, (laughs) they, they quote, Psalm 105.5, and let me just turn there, and it's an interesting verse. It says, um, uh, 105.15, do not touch my anointed ones. Um, and it's not a reference to pastors. It's actually a reference to the nation of Israel, and it's a warning that people are not to harm the nation of Israel because if they go against God's people, then they have God to deal with. Uh, with that said, in the New Testament, uh, we don't use this term anointed in the same way. There are certainly pastors who are set apart for leadership in the church and to shepherd God's church, but it doesn't mean that they're unaccountable uh, in that they uh, can do whatever they want and justify anything they say or any behavior that they might have. Uh, the scripture is clear that uh, indeed, everyone has a point of accountability, pastors as well as church members. And so if a pastor is living in rebellion, he is to be confronted uh, just like anyone else. If your brother sins, go and reprove him. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, then bring it to the church. And so uh, God is very, very clear um, that Psalm uh, 105.15, you know, about not touching God's anointed um, is in reference to the people of Israel, and it's not a reference to some pastor having free reign to do whatever he wants. And some pastors, because of the things that they have done, have basically uh, lost their ability to minister to God's people. A pastor can be disqualified uh, from serving in, in full-time ministry. And so, you know, there's a lot of scandals that have taken place in churches today. And some pastor who quotes Psalm 105.15 out of context and has nothing to do with what he wants it to mean. But he does that sometimes in order to justify that, you know, he's above the law, so to speak, and he's not. So good question. Appreciate that. You know, it occurred to me, if you use that same reference that um, Anthony did, that um you look at the prophet Nathan, who held David accountable. That's right. right. That's right. And, 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 of course, when it says, touch not my anointed, in both Psalm 105 and the way David uses it there in, in Getty, it's talking about physical harm. It's not talking about holding someone accountable. It's talking about bringing physical harm in Psalm 105.15 uh, on the people of Israel. And David said, no, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. I'm not going to harm God's anointed. But it has nothing to do with holding someone accountable for a lifestyle issue. And really, um, that's what David was doing, among other things. And that's what Nathan did to him as, as uh, the prophet of God when he confronted him for his adultery. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. Uh, and Abigail writes, is it wrong for a Christian to be asexual and to not feel attracted to any man or woman opposite sex of said person and have no sexual desire that could be fulfilled within the covenant of the marriage? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I don't know if we've gotten it 
exactly phrased in that way before. Um, but uh, there, there's really a couple of questions potentially going on. Is it wrong to be single and want to be single your whole life? But you actually bring it to another level and you're using this term asexuality and it's used in a couple of different ways. But the way you're using it and it's the way it's often used is it's spoken of, you know, to refer to someone who has no interest or desire for sex. And probably the closest text of scripture that would address it would come from 1 Corinthians 7. Paul begins the chapter by saying, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And so starting in chapter 7, really through virtually the end of the book, Paul begins to tick off one by one questions they asked him about, and he responds to each question through the letter. And of course, they're dealing with, uh, among other things, singleness. Is it okay to give your daughter you know, to someone to be married, especially in light of the persecutions that the early church was experiencing. So you give your daughter away in a marriage, and the next thing you know, the husband's dead. And, uh, you know, is this an admirable thing to do? And Paul says, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with sex. God created it. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband but it's to be done within the confines of marriage. So he says in verse 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you might devote yourselves to prayer. And then you come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So God delivers and gives these <clears throat> the sex drive that is to be fulfilled within a marriage covenant. Yet he says, nevertheless, you might render it, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. What was Paul? Paul was single. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, meaning God's given them a strong sex drive, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul's argument in the chapter is that some people have been gifted by God to remain single their whole life. And Paul is one such person. And so in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5, he reminds the Corinthians that he had a right to be married. He chose not to be. Now, does that mean Paul didn't have a sex drive? Not necessarily, but it didn't need to be fulfilled in a marriage covenant. It was not of the kind that he needed to be married in that respect. And so Paul recognized that this, by the way, is not a spiritual gift. I've seen some spiritual gift inventories where they have what they call the gift of singleness. There is no such spiritual gift in the New Testament. Spiritual gifts are God-given abilities given at the moment of conversion to serve the body of Christ. And this is not so much what God does through a person as God does to a person. And so there are some people who are single their entire life. And that's not a bad thing. That can be a good thing. Paul will later say in verse 32 of this chapter, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And then in verse 33 of chapter 7, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now, that's not a put down. That's a good thing. That's what it should be. His interests should be divided because God has called him to be a part of being married and having children and not to give unrestricted free, you know, devotion to the work of the kingdom, as he says, a single person could potentially do. So um, with that said, I I don't think you can build a case that 
Paul didn't have a sex drive, but he had a sex drive of a kind that didn't need to be fulfilled in marriage, and God had a purpose for him in that. I remember as a young Christian reading some books by John R.W. Stott, and I thought, man, this guy has written so many books. How, how does he have time to do this? And I remember then meeting him, and I never knew this until I met him, only to discover that he was single. And he had been single his whole life until he died in, he was like 83 or 84 years old, maybe died a decade ago. Um, And he had been single his whole life. And so, yeah, he could do a lot of things that other people didn't necessarily have the time to do because he was able to give undistracted devotion to the Lord. And, and, And let me say parenthetically to married couples, sometimes we are trying to marry off people who shouldn't be married. Uh, God sometimes has some people to be single their whole life, and it's not that they're weird or anything else. God just made them in a different way for his purpose to be fulfilled for his kingdom as born-again people. So be careful in trying to marry some people off. But on the other hand, I would just say to this caller who's writing that it would not necessarily be wrong if you have no sex drive to make sure that medically, there are no issues that are going on. And sometimes there are hormone imbalances in a person, male or female, that need to be analyzed and corrected because it's not that, you know, you just, there's some issues that are going on. And sometimes, too, there are some uh, issues in one's past that is going on uh, where they were, you know, sexually abused and so they find any kind of sexual um, intimacy in a marriage relationship is almost reprehensible because of uh, some of the uh, influences of their past. So that's worth exploring, considering. But if God's called you to be single your whole life, nothing wrong with that. Um, so Jesus spoke about the same thing about eunuchs, some who are made that way by men, some who are made that way by God, and there's nothing wrong with that. Let's go on to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we did receive a call uh, while answering the last question, they say that uh, some men base their whole ministries on anointing with oil and healing. This caller says that many people become extremely frustrated when they are not healed. And this caller would like to know if you feel that these ministries are more like the Pharisees demanding that Jesus perform a miracle. Well, um, I'm not real crisp here in your question. Are you referencing the person who's frustrated or the person who's doing it? Okay, so uh, apparently apparently, some men base their ministry. Let me just answer it from both sides. The ministry. I'll, I'll just answer it from both sides. It was apparently so, on the ministry. Yeah, so, um, you know, People love to take Scripture out of context, and if you take the Bible out of context, you can make it mean almost whatever you want it to mean. Is there anyone among you who's suffering? James asks in the fifth chapter. Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Then he's to sing praises. Is anyone sick? Well, then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
the effectual uh, or the effective prayer. I was going to quote it, the effectual fervent prayer, but the effective prayer, and it is a kind of prayer that is fervent, is that King James uses two words to translate the Greek, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So James is dealing with a sickness that is related to the elders in the church. What kind of sickness would that be? That would be a sickness that is um, due to church discipline. There are some people who are disciplined by the leadership of the church. I know that's a foreign concept in our day, but it's a biblical concept that if someone's caught up in sin, you're to reprove them. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three. If he doesn't listen, then you take it to the whole church. And if he doesn't listen to the whole church, he's to be treated as a tax gatherer. And so when he is removed from the protective umbrella of the local church, he comes in a more severe way under the discipline of God. And so I take it that what's going on here in James is that this individual is coming not to the elder, but notice it's the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Uh, It's not the elder of the church. It's not the elders of the churches, but it's the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Why? Because there is a plurality of leadership in the local assembly. So he comes to the, the elders, the leaders of the local assembly, and they obviously sense that there is a sickness that he is experiencing that is related to um, sin. And because of that, uh, they believe that they can pray in faith that this person can be healed. Why? Because he's come to the elders because he's truly repentant. And they believe that God's going to lift his disciplinary hand. But this is not some verse for some faith healer to travel the country hey, look, this is what brings uh, people into church doors and into, and into auditoriums where you have faith healers. And so many of these guys are scam artists. They're using snake oil techniques. Uh, they're, they're just liars, deceivers. And they make legs grow and all kinds of stuff. It's the biggest scam in the world. And But, I mean, who wants to be sick? Uh, I remember meeting with a man in Virginia and. He was a multi-multi-millionaire. This was back in the uh, late 1970s. In fact, this dear brother was in the Philanthropic Hall of Fame. And uh, his 18-year-old son had been in a car accident, and his brain stem had been severed. And uh, basically, he was a vegetable in a nursing home. And this man spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, gave money to ministries and everything else, you know, brought him to Oral Roberts, brought him to this faith heal or that faith. Why? Because who wants your son to be sick? You know, his heart was just broken. And he just thought, well, if someone could heal him, then so be it. And, of course, this was the promise that they used from James 5. And, of course, here it is, you know, um, a verse taken out of context. And what do these scammers do? They say, well, Roland, the problem was it's not it's not us. It's your lack of faith. That's why your son's not healed. It's your lack of faith. So, you know, that way they have 100% security. They're never wrong. They're always right. I mean, it's just terrible what's being done. So if you're going to some church and they're as a regular habitual part of the service, let's, let's bring in the healing part of the service. And some churches do it like communion. And people come to the quote-unquote altar, and they are anointed with oil and prayed over. And, you know, they're just scamming people in most of those cases. And because, again, nobody wants to be sick. I don't want to be sick. You don't want to be sick. Everybody wants good health. fact is, is we live in fallen bodies. 
and they take verses out of Isaiah uh, from out of context, you know, that he bore our sicknesses and, and just as you receive benefits from the cross by faith, uh, so you receive uh, not only forgiveness of sin by faith, you receive healing by faith. And and again, it's always on you. It's never on the faith healer. It's never on the evangelist as such. And so am I against anointing someone with oil? Not necessarily. So on occasion, someone comes to the elder board and, and they want us to anoint them with oil and pray over them. Again, there's no physical um, uh, healing properties in the oil. One popular speaker, I won't mention his name because he's a good brother, but I remember listening to him one day on the radio and he said, well, the parallel today would be you go to a doctor and you get uh, physical help from the doctor and you couple that with prayer. And so he tried to make a case between the oil and the prayer that the oil can be used uh, biblically for health reasons. And that is true. Oil can be used for health reasons. And a good example, of course, would be the parable of the Good Samaritan where he poured wine uh, over the man's cuts. And there's a certain chemical within the alcohol that kills germs. And so they mixed um, uh, wine with water to purify water in the first century and then the oil was more like a, a Band-Aid and a soothing, you know, um, um, outer Band-Aid that you then you could put a rag over, not to mention the rag wouldn't then stick to the cuts and the sores. And so, but I don't think that's what's in view here. I think what's in view here more is, is a prophet would come, like we mentioned Saul earlier in the broadcast here, where Saul was set apart. He was anointed by Samuel, as was David. And they are acknowledging that this person is set apart. And so the elders have come to a conclusion that this person's repentance is so genuine. They have a sense that he is now being set apart once again for God's purposes. And they're acknowledging that with the oil. And then they're praying over the person for healing. So a great question. Appreciate it. I could spend an hour on it. Um, But, um, well, we'll come to it later. Go ahead. All right. Uh, John from Hallowell, Maine, must be listening to us on WBCI up there. He writes, Pastor, I've been reading lately of Muslims in the Middle East who have had no access to the gospel, yet are coming to the faith as a result of dreams or actually having visions of Christ. Praise God if this is true. And it seems to align with what Peter said in Acts 2.17, quoting Joel. Now, admittedly, some of these claims are fraudulent, but some do appear genuine. Do these claims align with what scriptures teach? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, Of course, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost because a miracle had taken place. Uh, These different people, uh, all from the Galilean region, are speaking 15 different languages, glossolalia, which is the Greek word for language, and not just languages, but dialectos, uh, dialects within a language. And that was a miracle. If I didn't know any Chinese and all of a sudden I was speaking Chinese and Mandarin Chinese and Mandarin Chinese as it's spoken in Beijing versus, you know, some other city, uh, that's miraculous. And of course, uh, there were the mockers who said, well, these guys are drunk. And Peter says, your rationale doesn't even make sense. It's 9 a.m. in the morning. People don't typically get drunk at 9 a.m. Um, no, what happened is what happened uh, as prophesied, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. 
but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Uh, So this is not just uh, on the Jewish people, um, but on all mankind. That's the promise, and this is the initial start. And so God's giving all these different languages that are typically spoken by Gentiles in many ways as a prophecy of what he's going to do here in the book of Acts, and that the church is going to be not just simply Jewish, but it's going to be an international community where the wall between Jew and Gentile is removed. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And so this is what was prophesied in the last days. And so one, that gives you a hint that the last days, again, context is everything, but the last days began on the day of Pentecost. So we have been in the last days since the day of Pentecost, uh, in that the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any moment. The Bible also speaks of latter times, and that term is used restrictively in the New Testament for those days just before the return of Messiah to the earth. And we might substitute the last of the last days when you speak of the latter times. The Old Testament uses the term latter times, and it uses the term last days in reference to that time frame before Messiah uh, comes back to the earth. Uh, not in the rapture, but to rule and reign for a thousand years. So the fact that God could give dreams and visions is not out of hand. Now, we are living at a time when the Scripture is completed. And so in the early church, God communicated in many portions and in many ways because the canon was not script uh, finished. And what's very interesting is that when the final book of the Bible is written, Uh, The gift of tongues, for instance, dried up. It just stopped. The Holy Spirit stopped giving it. Uh, Church history records that. Why? Because there was no need for it. Uh, The canon of Scripture was complete. So is it possible for God to give a dream, say, to some Muslim? God can do whatever he chooses. And yes, it is possible. And has God done it? Yes. Has he given the plan of salvation where someone is born again through a vision and dream? I've never read of a particular case like that. I have read by people that I think are credible, of someone who's had a dream or a vision to go to a certain place where they then heard the plan of salvation and were one to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, But I've never heard of someone who, in a vision, had a dream of the death, burial, and the resurrection where they were convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment and of their need to call upon Jesus in faith. Never have heard of it, and I don't think you will because God uses human instruments in the church age to communicate the plan of salvation. And Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 10, where right after he says, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, he then asks, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? And then he quotes the Old Testament, how beautiful of the feet are those who bring gospel, or which is what the word good news, what, what the word gospel means, those who bring good news of good things. However, um, so then he kind of goes on from there. So people have to hear the plan of salvation. They have to hear the good news of the gospel. And God uses human instrumentality 
to accomplish that, however, for whatever form or expression it may take, whether it's some man who writes a tract and explains the plan of salvation. Um, but listen, we have a responsibility to carry the gospel to the world. That's the great commission of the church. And we can't rely on someone just having a dream where they can be saved. But can God use circumstances that will lead up to someone hearing the plan of salvation? Absolutely. And so, for instance, um, some years ago, there was a movie in the life of Christ that was being shown. And Paul Eshelman, who is really a fine, godly Christian man who spearheaded a project known as the Jesus Film, uh, when it began to be reproduced in the 1970s, you know, he met people in India who had a vision, a dream during the night to come to a certain place, and some of them walked two or three days. Did God give them the plan of salvation, the vision of their dream? No. But they went to that particular locale, and there they saw the Jesus film and someone stand up and share the plan of salvation, and they were converted. So those are the kinds of things I think God might do through a dream or a vision in this day. All right. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, our next caller says she heard your message on Sunday and that you referred to the people who have chosen not to be saved before the rapture, not having the opportunity to be saved during the tribulation. Uh, This caller thinks you referenced 2 Thessalonians 2.11 and would like you to explain this further. All right. So, um, God gives a warning in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, let me just uh, turn there if I might. Uh, Paul is uh, dealing with the church that thought maybe they had entered into the tribulation period and that maybe they had misunderstood his intention of what God meant concerning the rapture. And so Paul says, now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. We're going to be gathered together uh, at the rapture, and it's going to be a great event when it happens, and uh, you'll see your loved ones in the air. Uh, we'll, We'll see the Lord, and it's going to be a glorious day. And so he said that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So the day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church. Uh, The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day in Scripture. It is actually a prolonged period of time that mimics a biblical day. It starts a biblical day with sundown, and it ends the next day at sundown. So every Jew goes from sundown to sundown in terms of experiencing um, you know, in terms of uh, dealing with their, um, uh, their, their Sabbath day. And so some had thought, oh, well, Paul wrote a letter, and Paul will write to the Galatian church, and he says, hey, just so you know, here is the distinguishing mark that I put on all of my letters. Oh, Paul wrote us a letter. No, I didn't write it. Oh, a spirit spoke. You know, there, that could be a word of prophecy where, again, God was still giving words of prophecy in the early church. There was still a time when, before the canon of Scripture was completed, that God spoke, you know, directly to people, miraculously through prophets. And, you know, that day is over because we have a completed um, plan of salvation and the completed canon of Scripture. So he makes it clear, let no one in any way deceive you, 
that it will not come, our gathering together, um, you, you know, the, the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So there's going to be some telltale signs about the apostasy that will uh, let you know that this is unique, that this is the apostasy of all apostasies. And that day has not yet come. We have always seen apostasy in the church, but there's coming a time when uh, the apostasy of all apostasies will unfold, and that will come through, indeed, the coming Antichrist. And so God's word is clear. We're not in that day yet, but it is coming. And so he says, let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come the day of the Lord unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So there'll be two telltale key critical factors that will unfold that will tell you that you're in the time of the tribulation period. There'll be a great turning away from the truth. And in many respects, while we have apostasy in this day, and while some of the things that we're seeing in our day are probably a forerunner to the for the things to come, it's not that time when uh, Christendom, as we know it, will reject Jesus and follow Antichrist. That will happen after the rapture. And the man of lawlessness, he's the Antichrist, he'll be exposed. And so he says, don't you remember that while I was with you, I was telling you this thing. He says, however, in verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And that's what John confers as well, that there is indeed a, uh, the work of the Antichrist has been apparent since the day of Pentecost. And this is what Jesus foretold in the kingdom parables, that as the gospel would go out to the whole world during the same time, uh, there would be one who would go and sow false seed. And John brings that up where he says, I just flipped over to 1 John 2. If you're interested, children, it's the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, that that man of sin who will come in the place of Christ and who will be against Christ, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it's the last hour. Again, going back to Acts 2, from this you know it's the last days. Because in the last days it started with Pentecost, there would be certain signs. And one of the signs is there would be the man of lawlessness um, in the last of the last days, but who's called the Antichrist, but there'll be Antichrist, those who are against Christ, false teachers throughout the church age. And so that's what he's referring to. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. He's speaking here of the ministry of the Spirit of God. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is restraining sin in the world today. And when he um, takes the church out, uh, and the church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, uh, lawlessness, hell, sin is going to have a holiday like they've never seen. It won't be that the Spirit of God is not at work during the time of the tribulation. He'll be very much at work but he'll not be at work in the church because the church will have been taken out. We will have been removed. And then that lawless one, there's a time word there. Then after that event, when the church is taken out of the way, as the spirit has removed his presence in the church, then that lawless one will be revealed. And he reminds us whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Uh, We studied that in the book of Revelation how God is going to slay the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. 
That's what the Antichrist will do. He will be a real human, but he'll be empowered by the evil one. And with him will come, verse 10, all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them. Who's the them? Those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they, those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Why do people today not believe the truth? Some dad wrote me a letter a few days ago just pouring out his heart over his daughter and she says she's an atheist and she had this list of all these scriptures that are supposedly contradictory and I could have spent hours responding to his email, but I'm just one person and I can only answer so many questions. I can't answer half the questions that come to me. If I did, I would never prepare a sermon and never do the responsibilities I had as a local pastor. But I said, well, here, let me give you at least one example. I took the very first verse on this list and said, let's look at it in context and see your daughter has distorted the context. And she's obviously going to one of these atheist websites, you know, that try to come up with alleged contradictions in the Bible. And and I said, but what's driving her ship? I said, 99.9% chance your 16-year-old daughter has been immoral. And she is dealing with a guilty conscience, and she doesn't know how to handle it. And so how do you deal with guilt? Well, you you deal with guilt very simple. You You deny it as wrong. I mean, who are the most vocal advocates of abortion? Women who have had abortions, uh, that's the way it always is. Uh, they um, basically want to justify the guilt that they are experiencing. So how do they justify the guilt they're experiencing? By saying it's not wrong. By saying they've done nothing wrong. That what they've done is just fine. And so they love the darkness. And because they love the darkness, Jesus said, they do not come to the light. So what I think we're dealing with here are people who have clearly heard the plan of salvation. Now, you may have some loved ones who don't know the plan of salvation, who don't really know how to be saved. And I get that. And I don't think that those are the people that are really in view here. I think what's in view are people who have had a clear presentation of the gospel and has said no to the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of their love for sin, their love for the darkness, if, um, if you have a loved person, a loved one who says, well, you know, look, when, when if this so-called rapture happens, I'm just going to get my heart right with God because then I'll know you're right. If you're gone and all these other born-agains are gone, I'll, I'll, I'll know that you are right. And, and um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, at that point, believe what you've said. No, that's not going to happen. God is clear that he's going to send a deluding influence on those who have heard the truth but refuse the truth so as to be saved, and they're going to believe a lie. So the opposite of unbelief, is um, of not believing many times, is, is rejecting totally the truth, and you end up following a lie. Uh, I, I met a person recently in a city I was speaking in with my wife. She was doing a women's conference, and I was um, speaking at the Slavic church that had all kinds of former Soviet countries brought together. And, 
and uh, near the church, there was this extremely busy sidewalk, <clears throat> hundreds of thousands of people in that city, over a million people, and and every three hours, these Jehovah's Witness would rotate. And I remember, you know, every time we'd go by between meetings or whatever, you know, I'd say, man, they were like clockwork. And and sometimes, you know, I, I, most of the time I would stop, <clears throat> excuse me, I would stop and speak with them. And uh, as I did, sometimes I would find a JW who was really open. But then I would find some JWs who were closed. Why were they closed? No doubt because they had heard the truth and rejected the truth. Look at <clears throat> Joseph Smith had heard the truth, but he had rejected the truth. And that's why he believed and not only believed, he propagated a lie. Um, on Sunday, uh, I, on Sundays, I do a new members launch with uh, new members of our church. And on occasion, we'll have uh, a couple that will come where one has joined the church and the other is not usually because the other is not a believer, and typically they don't come, but occasionally they do come. As it turns out, this dear brother brought his wife who had been studying with the Jehovah's Witness. And as I spoke with her and was answering her questions, and, you know, I had eight people at the table, uh, as it turns out, she was extremely open, and I believe she's going to become a, a true believer. I don't. I think she probably thinks she is, but she's not. Um, and so... What we're talking about here in 2 Thessalonians 2 are people who have heard a clear presentation of the gospel in clarity and in power, and they've said no to it. And those people will not be saved. Those are not a part of the great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are saved during the seven-year period through the 144,000, through the two witnesses, and through the angel that preaches an eternal gospel. Those three groups, an angel, the two witnesses, and the 144,000 plus those tribulation saints who in turn are converted through their ministries and their sharing their faith, those people are going to go to people who've never heard the gospel and clarity and power before, and those are the people who come to faith, not other people. And that's why sometimes you say, do not put off salvation today. For that's today, right. It's the day of decision. Today is the day of salvation, exactly. And um, so this is, uh, there's an urgency to the gospel. And if we blow off that, you know, look, you can't come to Christ when you want, because you can't come to Christ independently of the Spirit of God. He convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's the one who's knocking on your door. And really, the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, is to habitually say no to the Spirit of God, because he's called the Spirit of truth, and he's speaking truth to your heart. And every time you tell him no, you're basically saying, I don't believe the truth you are saying. And so what are you doing? You're saying the Holy Spirit is a liar, and you can reach a point where you, in your heart of hearts, say that with all of the unction within your soul, and you're really blaspheming, rejecting the only one who can open your eyes to truth. So you don't tell him no. If he's at work in your heart today, you should be saying yes. All right, I think we've got time for one more question. Do you think, this caller wants to know, that Jephthah actually sacrificed his daughter in Judges 11? No, I don't. So if you just um, Google that uh, under search the scriptures, I give a 30-minute answer on one broadcast and it will pull it up. So I, I'll, I'll just let you go to that. Let's go and take All one right. more. All right. Tina from Lemington, Ontario writes, K 
Can Christians eat halal food, or should we abstain from food offered to idols? I always thought no based on Acts 15, but someone pointed out 1 Corinthians 8, and now I'm not sure what to believe. I know the Bible doesn't have contradictions, but I'm confused with this. Well, um, the passage you reference is really a good, helpful passage. Uh, The word halal is an uh, Arabic word that just means permissible. When I was in uh, New York City in December uh, for a meeting, you know, I saw all these halal trucks because, of course, uh, New York City has, I don't know, probably 100,000 Muslims now, probably more. Um, And so they sell halal food uh, all over the place. Would it be wrong for me to stop at a halal truck and eat the food? No, uh, it would not be. Um, Would I want to? Not really. Why? Because I don't want to make a Muslim rich and put dollars in his pocket in order to help him to preach his false message. Now, if maybe for evangelistic purposes I wanted to stop at a halal truck and strike up a conversation with the guy who was selling his product, then, you know, that might be something the Lord would have me to do. Uh, But remember, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul said, look, there's no such thing as an idol, Uh, A man may call an idol a god, but there's only one god. And, of course, his whole point in dialoguing with the early church is if uh, someone buys meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, and for a lot of uh, poor people, especially in the city of Corinth, that was the best deal in the city. Uh, Someone brought a, a cow to be sacrificed at some pagan temple, and they'd use a portion of the cow, and two thirds of the cow would be sold at the meat market. And on a really busy day where a lot of sacrifices were done, there was a lot of meat that was piling up, and you could buy it cheap. And so some of the Christians said, hey, should we buy this meat sacrifice to an idol? And Paul said, look, there's nothing wrong with the meat. Uh, There's nothing wrong with halal food, even though maybe a blessing when it was butchered by some, you know, Muslim leader said some prayer to Allah over it because there's no such thing as Allah. There is no such thing as Allah. There's only one true God, and he's the God of Israel. Um, But with that said, if it causes your brother to stumble or your brother has a weaker conscience and he doesn't see it that way and he thinks you're participating in evil, then Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 8, again in 1 Corinthians 10, again in Romans chapter 14, that you need to be willing to restrict your behavior for the sake of love. Anyway, we're out of time, but thanks for being with us today on the Bible line. Appreciate it so much and hope you can join us another day. 